totally my face and some of the ones i'm like what am i doing here <laughs> this is so weird it yeah. was a little bit eerie i say in the video it's kind of post-apocalyptic vibes yes. welcome friends to obviously the future a show that explores the massive trends that will shape our world in conversation with the trailblazers the nonconformists, and the hidden experts who are building tomorrow today what do we got today caitlin Today, we are joined by Nick Gray. Nick is a serial entrepreneur currently based in Austin, and he has written a book called The Two-Hour Cocktail Party that helps people build strong relationships and grow their network of friends. Nick is prolific on social media. He writes a friend's newsletter, and he has an interesting perspective on what it takes to be a friend billionaire. Greetings. Great to have you. Thank you. I'm sorry that I'm late. I apologize. I had an airport pickup. You just said from, from an airport pickup. I don't know anything about this, but there's this life hack that you have related to airport pickups. Tell us this. Can you share a little bit here? I pick people up at the airport. Did I ever pick you up, Caitlin? Did I pick you no, up ever? No, I not yet. I Caitlin up. But, but I like to pick people up at the airport because it is a thing I can do instead of, oh, let's meet for coffee or, oh, let me pick your brain. It's a way that I can do something so generous and out of the ordinary to really welcome someone and make an impact. And I think I do a lot of that stuff, things that don't scale in order to build relationships. How many airport pickups have you done? I've probably done 25 or so. That's just a guess. One time there was a huge festival here called South by Southwest that's famous in Austin. And a lot of people were coming through and I blocked out my whole calendar for like three days. And it was a revolving door of airport pickups. And I had a cooler filled with drinks and a box full of snacks. And wow. I was just blocking out my time. And I got to Wait, meet so, so you, many people. You're proactively reaching out to people and at, saying like, hey, you're coming to Austin. What's your flight details? Let me pick you up. I do that a little bit. That's very nice and that works or two other things if i see that someone's coming in town then i'll not knowing them but i'll say hey this is a thing that i do i'd love to meet i don't want anything i'll just i'll pick you up and i'll take you right to your place but the real thing is once i've done that a couple of times people will refer me to their friends because they're like oh, hey cool. are you still doing airport wow. pickups like i have a really cool friend coming in town and about half the time i get to do it and i get to meet somebody totally new Okay, that's awesome. And what, do, how do you deal with the exit point? So do they ever invite you into the place? Like, are they usually checking into a hotel? How many times is it just pick up drop off? And then how many times is it corral into something more? Usually to stick it into just me sort of living up and delivering on my promise. I just want to drop them off. I usually have other stuff scheduled. But there was one guy, one of the founders of Morning Brew, which is like an email newsletter. He came to town. He was like, hey, do you want to get tacos real quick? And I was like, yeah, let's go get tacos. And so, yeah. Yeah, it's nice. Nice. That's awesome. Tacos are the way to go in Austin, we'll say. They really are. We're the home of tacos here in Austin. So uh, I'm more of a burrito guy myself. So Okay. Very West I, Coast. I like, yeah, yeah so like, I prefer the SF. Yeah. So Nick. What does it mean to be a friend billionaire? Oh, you know, some a-hole registered that domain name after Andrew tweeted that. Yeah. If it was one of you two, please give me the domain. I would like to have it. <laughs> you no, know, um, I would be tempted, but sadly it's not me. 
You do have a lot of domain names. Though. I think a friend billionaire, a guy named Andrew Wilkinson wrote that I was a friend billionaire, which is a funny title. And it was just about the relationships or the network that I've built. And I think I have an amazing network of acquaintances and friends that I'm really proud of who are doing cool stuff. So I think about that. I think it just means, yeah, they're just building a relationship. I do a lot of weird things. I have a friend's newsletter. I share my life online. I randomly call people on the phone just to see how I can help, I think, and add value. Stuff that's not scalable. How do you think about the difference between an acquaintance, a friend, and a deep friend? I think a deep friend is someone, if you had an emergency at two o'clock in the middle of the night, that you could call them for help. They say, by the way, that like 19% of American men don't have a best friend with someone that they could call in the middle of the night. So I think that is like a close friend, somebody very, very, very tight. I think one of the greatest indicators of how strong your relationship is, is whether if you call them randomly on the phone, if they will answer yes. or send you a message back immediately, right? Totally. That is a good signal. Um and then an acquaintance could be somebody who hopefully I remember their name when I see them. They know my name. They're familiar with my stuff. I'm familiar with their stuff. Maybe you could make an introduction with their permission. By the way, for those of you listening, please do the double opt-in intro. Oh my if God. Double opt-in intro is crucial. You I, you know I, what it, can you explain I've what made, it is, Arvind? Yes, because I made the mistake. I learned by making the mistake, getting embarrassed by someone and then have never done it again. Once I learned, it was like so obvious. So the, the basic idea is if A asks you to introduce them to B, you ask B if they would like to be introduced to A first and then only make the introduction. So I had a college dorm mate that ended up becoming someone re reasonably prominent. And a friend of mine who I love asked to introduce me to them. And I got along with this college dorm mate. I only knew them when there was no fame involved. So it didn't even cross my mind. And so I was just like, oh, let me just make this intro. Made it and got a scathing rebuke of an email. Was like, this person's already tried to reach out to me in three different ways. And I've already said no. I was like, oh, I didn't even think about the potential receiver's end in that situation. And it was like, yeah, like. Totally makes sense. My bad. There's nothing you can do in that situation, but uh, take responsibility and learn your lesson. So yes, I, I fully subscribe. You got to do the double option. Wait, so coming um, back to the friendship, we, 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 let's close the yes. loop here. Do you think of this as the more acquaintances you are creating a wide funnel by which to create friends, by which to create deep friends, or is there intrinsic value in each level of the pyramid in and of itself? Yes. I, number one, I do think about it as a friendship funnel. And for business purposes, we know that the greatest opportunities come not from our best friends, but from what they call weak ties or loose connections. That's that random LinkedIn connection you have from two jobs ago. Someone you met at a conference who happens to be sharing that they're now hiring. You find investors through friends of friends, things like that. And so I am a huge proponent of building your network of acquaintances because all big relationships start at the acquaintance phase. You don't just jump into an investor. You don't just jump into a best friend, a significant other, or a roommate. You go through the acquaintance phase. You get to know them first, and then something happens out of it. That's how relationships build. 
And so I think I do a pretty good job of building my network of acquaintances. But how do you become, how do you go from friend to deep friend? I don't think that's my area of expertise, but I've heard, I was talking to a friend and she was like, oh yeah, you need to really work on a project together. You need to have some sort of deep shared experience. That yeah. could be spending a weekend at a conference together. It could be flying on a plane together. It could be sitting next to them after a layover. It is some deep experience that you have with this person. And the only way to fast track time is to have that deep sort of experience a little bit of trauma together. That's why there's team building activities and games for businesses to try to accelerate those connections to an extent. But most of my work really involves in trying to help people grow top of funnel, new connections, hosting events that help you to grow top yes. of funnel. You're a serial entrepreneur. You've started two companies in some ways, uh, How to Make Friends or The Two-Hour Cocktail Party is your third big venture. Why did you decide after Museum Hack to write the book and make this your next mission? I got so much benefit from hosting parties myself. You know, I moved to New York City, wasn't really an extrovert, had not a lot of social skills. And I learned that instead of going to bad parties, I'd learn how to host a good party. And that really changed my life. It helped me launch my last company, Museum Hack, which turned into a multi-million dollar business. I helped my friends who moved to new towns use the same formula format in order to meet people. And I, frankly, I wanted to write a book, but I wanted to do it on something that I could truly add value. What was my thing beyond just like stories or something? Like I really wanted to know how I could add the most value. And this Google doc that was shared amongst friends of my step-by-step -step guide of how to host an event, I was like, oh, I think there could be something to that. Like product market fit, you kept on getting more and more validation for that idea. Yeah. And you're like, the pull is pulling me towards this. I'm not pushing. Yes, yes. It felt like the most value additive thing that I could do that I was an expert on. I've hosted hundreds and hundreds of events myself. And there is a formula that you can use to make them successful. And I wanted to share that. Awesome. And what, this is obviously the future where we're talking to experts who can see the future that the rest of us may not be able to. What's something that from the feedback you've received from people who've read it, what's something that you know about the future that, that maybe is not so obvious to others? I think when you think about live events, there's a lot more introverts or people with social anxiety that event planners or hosts don't really think about. I hear from a lot of people, they're like, no, bro, you know, I'm going to be a chill host. I'm not going to do name tag. You know, I'm not going to do icebreaker. I, I'm just going to be chill, bro. I'm just going to be chill. And I actually hear from a lot of people who say that, wow, I am so thankful that you had a little bit of structure. I really appreciate the name tags, the intros that you did. And it helps to loosen up events. So that thing certainly seems to be obviously the future. It's probably not... Super obvious, but the hunger for live events right now, the hunger for people wanting to meet up to go from online to IRL seems palpable, seems just people are tripping over themselves. And I think that there are so many, whether it's podcasts or communities that are having success hosting their own events, 
turning into sometimes like with Capital Camp, multi-million dollar businesses that they're building out of a community. So I think that's interesting. It's a hard business. It's not scalable. It's not venture class perhaps, but it is a business. You've mentioned you not scalable a couple times. So how is there something about not scalable that kind of attracts you secretly? It's easy for me to do. And we could just give a couple examples of those hosting cocktail parties and happy hours, right? The maximum I can comfortably host is 25 or 30. Giving airport rides takes about an hour of each one. Writing a book, selling a book where I only make five, $6 per copy. Those are not massively scalable things that will ever make me a billionaire, but perhaps it'll be a stepping stone to something along the way. And I like doing those things. You have cultivated a lot of tips for in-person events and cocktail parties, but you're also a, so a prolific social media poster across TikTok, Twitter, Instagram, and your friend's newsletter. I like, just how had do you my first viral video. Do you see my video from the water park? Of course. I got an empty water park for only $50. I think because school started and no kids are around, I went on a Wednesday morning. But just wait, you have to do this. Try it with your friends. Go on a, okay, of course it's post-apocalyptic vibes, but it's also really fun. There were no lines for any, this one was my favorite. I got to ride it just again and again. I had a lot of fun. Go on a Wednesday morning, right when doors open. Send this to a friend you want to go with. Yeah, yeah, it was awesome. 26 million views now. Wow. My first clip that like truly went viral. You know yes. that you've made it and gone viral when people are having political fights in your comments that you yes. don't even know about videos that aren't even political. That's when you've made it. When people are fighting, when strangers are fighting in your mentions, that's when you what, made it. What do yes. you think resonated so deeply about the video? Like why this one versus any other? I think that idea of having a water park all to yourself deeply resonated with kid, with both Gen Z, millennials, Gen X, just that idea of a very playful, fun adventure really resonated with people. Well, how and, I mean, political? I don't know, the, the way watching that video, there's something about the absurdity of it on some level to like psychoanalyze it was on some level like a dream, but then on some level looked also like absurdly lonely. It, it yes. wasn't just a purely magical thing. It was also yes. like, Damn, something about this also looks fucked up. Like, it's, yes, <laughs> you know? Yes, totally, totally. My face and some of the ones, I'm like, what am I doing here? <laughs> this is so weird. It yeah. was a little bit eerie. I say in the video, it's kind of post-apocalyptic vibes. Yes. yes. Because when there's not like all these kids running around and everything. For that reel, by the way, I've tried to do some things. I don't know if it helped or not. But if you ever have a piece that goes viral, someone from Meta reached out to me. I don't know if it was because of that thing went viral or something else, but they gave me some tips and some things that I learned is really liking and engaging and replying back to as many comments as possible. Even if you throw a tweet out there and it gets some reply that you might not agree with or you don't know the person, just really trying to like and engage right back saying, thank you for the comment, good point, oh, I'll check that out. Doing that to really build up and boost your own signal and the engagement on your posts does seem to be versus this idea that like we just put our ideas out there and we spray and pray and we broadcast, but actually trying to be a creator who reacts to people. One little thing I did was I set up a keyboard shortcut on my phone that fills in a sentence that says, thank you so much for sharing my reel to your story. 
And usually all these people, your reel gets shared when you go viral 30 times a day, nobody does anything. But I DM'd almost every single one. When I'm waiting in line at the restaurant or something, I open my phone, I just boom, 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 I fire them all off. And I have a hunch that helps people, those people that are active sharers to then have my stuff show up more often to them because now we're DMing back yeah, and forth for sure. and they be more inclined to maybe share more stuff to their stories. Yes. So I enjoy it. I see it as a game and I'm trying to figure out how this stuff works and it's very fun for me. I wouldn't recommend a serious founder to try to go down that route. It does seem like there's a lot of wasted time in social media. Can we go into this dichotomy? So you like this game of engaging with online, but you also really like meeting people in real life. So which do you like more? Do you see them as complimentary? Yeah, um, hugely complimentary. I think that they lay the foundation to an extent, if you're laser targeted for smoothing out the in-person introductions. And it's a double-edged sword. There's a lot of people who know what's going on in my life and I know nothing of what's going on in their life. I was shopping at um, Costco the other day and this woman came up, Nick, oh my God. I had like maybe met her once and I did not, but she sees me online all the time. So she knows my name, everything about me, what's going on. And it's this like weird, great though. I love it. I love it so much. I think it lays a foundation. It just makes it easier. And the reality is that these days before anybody, if you cold outreach to somebody, they're going to look you up online and they're going to look at what's new, what's on your social media, what's being said. They're going to do a little due diligence on you. And so for me, it makes it just makes those a little bit easier. It's true. I think one of the things that's interesting about, you know, I've, I've probably gone to quite a few Nick Gray cocktail hours at this point. But when you're hosting a cocktail hour, it's hard to engage the people that are there because you, one-on-one, -on -one because you're writing name tags and like making sure everyone feels welcome. And so I imagine that the online presence really helps people feel like they get to know you after they've gone to an event, even though they haven't been able to engage you in, in a deep conversation, maybe then. Yeah, I think it does help. By the way, I spent so many years of my life doing stories on Instagram and that was interesting and good. I have a, a large number of people who watch those and they're very loyal fan base, but the numbers never grew at all. It was basically flat. And it wasn't until I started to do reels, which the platform is really boosting for short form video, that those are shareable. Those have dramatically grown my audience. And so I just think about sharing online and platforms. There's something unfortunate that I think we all three of us are in a lot of private WhatsApp groups or various other platforms, chat threads with people that a lot of what we share and discuss and engage is not online. And there is something very special about having conversations online in public in ways that sort of can expose you to meeting new people. What's an example of, of the most interesting interaction you've had from someone you've just met online? Great question. There's a guy who runs, his name is Syed, and he is in the WordPress world. And I had really wanted to connect with him. I learned about him in 2020. And I, I had reached out to him. And my thing is phone calls. I love phone calls. I think I'm good on the phone. I can get a lot done in five minutes. I can express my personality on a call. And of course, when I reached out to him first, no answer. Second time, oh, thanks very much. I don't do phone calls. You can send me an email with whatever you have, which is what I say to people sometimes as well. 
And finally, I was able to link up and to connect with him. And I think it's because I started to engage with some of his things online. And he just saw and puts the pieces together of my name Oh, this person reached out eventually. And now I'd say that we're sort of friends or at least very good acquaintances. I could, I'd call him on the phone. There's a 30% chance he would answer perhaps. Nice. That's cool. I want to shift gears a little bit. If you were to write an addendum or a version for founders who are looking to build their network, who are trying to do this with a more business oriented goal, what would be the skills that you think would be relevant? There's a woman named Melissa Abrantes in Houston, who's using my book to host networking events for founders in Houston. And she is absolutely crushing it. And when I think about networking events, I think about what a matchmaker once told me when we were talking about singles events. She said, the secret to a successful singles event is to never call it a singles event because it puts too much pressure on people, right? Every interaction I have, what does this mean? You know, should I talk to them? What are they going to think? I kind of think the same thing about a, a good networking event that you can't really call it a networking event. If you want it to be successful, you have to know that that may be the purpose, but but also invite a diverse group of founders, operators, an interesting mix of people, I think is really helpful. So if you're a founder and you want to do something like this to grow your business, to work on your hiring pipeline, to meet investors, the number one thing that I have found for a successful event is how many people you can get to show up. And for a casual happy hour, I believe that the minimum you can really have is about 15 or 16 people. I'm now pushing people up a little bit higher to 18 or 19, which gives a little bit of buffer in case there's some no-shows. But that's number one, first and foremost. And when you invite those people, you can't just spray and pray your invitations. You have to first invite what I call your core group. And you're going to test your date and time with that core group. So let's say that you two were in my core group and I was thinking of hosting a networking event. I'd say, hey, Arvind, hey, Caitlin, I'm thinking of hosting a happy hour in two weeks on Tuesday night from 6 to 8 p.m. If I do it, would you come? Yeah. And so you as a founder hosting your first event need to ask around and get five or six yeses before you even start to share this to a wider network of acquaintances because that gives you the confidence that you're going to have people show up. The worst thing that could happen is nobody shows up or worse, only like two or three people show up and then it's just horribly awkward. So those are a few things that much of my book, you know, I've often thought that like, gosh, I really should have written it focused on networking because that kind of is the purpose to build your network of relationships. Yes. yes. Yeah. Nice. And what about in terms of your online presence, you're going viral now. You also tend to know a lot of very online founders. What's your advice to founders on social media and whether to engage or not? My advice online, okay, here's one thing that you can do immediately today is you can start a, your own friend's newsletter. And I would send your newsletter out once a quarter or once every six months. Do not think you need to use a platform like ConvertChimp or MailChimp or Substack. You can just put people on BCC, include a nice note. Hey, if you want to unsubscribe, just write me back. But in that newsletter, you have to provide value. You have to tell them what the best books you've read, the best shows you've seen, links to good articles. You have to give value before you ever think of asking for anything. 
example of something that you would ask for is if you're a founder and you're hiring for some positions, right? Most people will just blast out, hey, we're hiring for this critical role. We need engineers. Do you know anybody? I prefer to add value first. What do you think about my advice to start a friend's newsletter, Caitlin? You have a lot of newsletter experience. It's a piece of advice I give to young people all the time, especially people who want to keep in touch with me. It's just like send a newsletter. I'll probably read it because I'm curious, especially if you add value, as you say. And so I think it's smart. Heck yeah. I think we need more personal newsletters. So if you take anything out of this, fire up a message to... Folks, put them in the BCC, add value, and then let them know what you're working on. And go ahead, include me and Caitlin and Arvind on your BCC. Let's go. Yeah. Um, By the way, a weird random hack is I actually get amazing um, open rates if I send a newsletter on Thanksgiving Day. And as we think about Thanksgiving Day, if you were going to choose one day to send out a newsletter, it's like completely controversial. But think about the arc of an entire Thanksgiving Day. Of course, it's a family day. Of course. Yes. yes. But everybody's also kind of a little connected and nothing really sends. So that's one yeah. little hack you could consider. I like yeah, you. You got the whole day to wait for the the big afternoon meal and football. So it's like there's a lot of dead time actually to kill. Right? That's true. Yes. Yeah. Makes sense. Uh, Okay. I want to ask, so Caitlin has this list of many of her domain names. One of them is My Younger Self. And she has a list of books that she recommends to her younger self. Uh, Can you give us a book that you would recommend to your younger self? There's a book in the process of my writing my book that I would recommend to anyone thinking about writing something. And as a founder or CEO, you need to be a good communicator. And the advice or the book that I wish I would have read much sooner, it's called Write Useful Books by a guy named Rob Fitzpatrick. It's a very well-written short book. You can read it quickly. And the gist of it is that you do not need to write in a bubble. You need to be getting your material in people's hands as soon as possible to test for the resonance. Do not write your book in a cave on your own and then expect to show up one day with a final manuscript and have an army of supporters that are ready, willing, and able to buy your book. The reality is for most new authors and people who want to communicate, you need to be sharing regularly and in public to test for resonance. And that was really helpful for me. I like that book. Great, that's That's a good recommendation. Yeah, I've never heard of that one before. If you have a guest who gives a book recommendation that you've never heard of before, they yes. should actually win a small award <laughs> and potentially yes. get a prize. Wow. See, intuitively, I would have thought the opposite, which is if they say a book that's on your list of books you would recommend to your younger self, then they've proven their... Good point. Good point. Their, their alignment. You can go both directions, actually. Yes. Yes. Different what prizes. you don't want what you yeah. don't want is in the middle. You don't want a book that you've read and didn't like. That's then it's true. like that then you've really just screwed the pooch on that one. <laughs> yes. he, he recommends a book that I just already hated. It's like, oh wow, that's the one you're choosing to give to your younger self. By the way, I'm thinking of doing an expose at some time on the very convoluted, messed up nature of book blurbs. And how much of a scam a book book blurbs are. Yeah. For certain books, they are very much a scam. 
And if you're listening to this today and you're newer in your career, I would caution you against how much you should trust in book blurbs, especially among first-time authors. What You know, when Arvin and I were beginning to put together this podcast, we recalled, I can't remember if it was a conversation with you or a blog you wrote, where you said that you wanted to write a book that if someone famous walked by, you would track them down and like give them the book. And you had so much confidence in the work that you knew that it would be worth their time and that it was like worth stopping them. And so that's what we really think is the bar for a podcast or any sort of medium is like getting and refining your process to the the point where it's as it's such high quality that you're like, no, you have to listen to this. This will be helpful for you or interesting. That's something that I say is that for my book, I wanted to be so proud of it that if I saw a celebrity or a famous person that I would run them down and say, oh my God, I'm a huge fan of your work. I busted my butt on this book. I truly think it's an amazing book. I would love, love, love to give you a copy. And many people these days, you know, they do books as part of a marketing funnel or it's just to raise their reputation or something like that. And that was really important to me that I was super, super proud of it. And you, by the way, you don't just say things like that. You do it. I have given my book, let's just say to multiple billionaires where I think they can see it in my eyes too. I'm genuinely proud of it. And I feel like the lesson here for founders perhaps is to think about what business you're doing. If you feel that proud of your business, that if you're grinding so hard because you truly believe in what you're doing in your product, that's probably the right thing. And you'll probably figure that out. But if you're just doing this to get paper or to make your money or something, that still works as well. There's certainly been successful people, but it's a little harder to see that fire in somebody's eyes. One of our investment criteria at Avalanche is that we want to invest in founders who are building their life's work. And that's a very difficult thing to fake. And it's clear that from everything that you've done, that what you're building right now with the two-hour cocktail party and wherever it goes next is part of that arc of your life's work. And it just is a very different feeling when you're backing and working with founders for which they're building their life's work because yes. they're going to keep at it and they know so much about the, the problem that they're trying to solve. And they're like, well, no matter what, I'm not giving up. So this is going to yes. be solved one way or another. Yeah. Right? Yes. Yeah, it's so true. I've been watching videos with Mr. Beast lately, which I know... Folks probably think, oh, cliche, played out, like everybody knows everything. But he's pretty vulnerable in sharing a lot of his video in a lot of his thinking and not hiding his stuff. And the amount of commitment that he talks about that he's had over the last seven or eight years is really admirable for somebody to be so dedicated to that. Yeah. 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 I've also gone deep down the Mr. Beast rabbit hole. And yes. yeah, his commitment to the craft uh, is unparalleled. He's very raw about communicating. Uh, have you watched his interview on the Colin and Samir show that came out a yes. few weeks ago? Yes. Pretty wild to hear about what it is like for him. The first five minutes of the interview show a little bit of the dark nature of being yes. a celebrity. Yes. And he had something really fascinating that he said which was that once one person takes a selfie, it completely changes the atmosphere. Yeah, shatters shatters everything. And so he cannot do one. And he even said, you probably remember, he said from the moment of the first photo, 
he has to leave within five minutes. He has yes. to leave. It doesn't matter where he is. Yes. From that first photo, the timer starts and he has to physically move yes. because it just gets so wild. I'm working on an article that I hope to finish. I'm going to ask you both to help me proof it, but it's called How to Be Sort of Famous. And yes. I feel like I know a lot of people who are like sort of famous among yes. certain groups. Yes. And it's just some common sense advice, but also not common sense advice. And nobody really teaches you those things. What I was going to say is I think one of the things that distinguishes Mr. Beast that we also look for in founders is the idea of metacognition. Like he is sharing his learning very actively. And that's the flywheel of massive success. Mm. And and because he's learning so fast, and he also knows the algorithm changes and the game is changing. So he's not worried about it protecting his P today. He knows that he's ahead of everybody else and that his flywheel of learning will keep him ahead. That How do you think about that flywheel of learning with founders? Well, it depends on what they're building. But like one of the hard things about education in particular is that the sales cycle, it's very seasonal with every year is different. So you only have... For many of those products, you only have a year before you can launch the next one or like the next sales campaign with those sorts of timing. So you have to be able to have good intuition and find hacks to, to learn faster without getting that validation versus Mr. Beast, every, like he A-B tests all of his videos and thumbnails and everything in real time in seconds. And so he can have a much faster flywheel. And so mm. you look for people who understand feedback loops, data, they're not tied to a belief that's unfounded in evidence and reality of, oh, it has to be this way because I think so. That's neat. Yeah, it's a lot of data points, right? It's data points, but then you have to be able to react and interpret those data points in the right way mm. so that it compounds over time, which is why you can never invest in someone where you're like, okay, well, I know that if I can help them in this area of judgment, they will get better because you're like, no, they need to have that judgment on a continuous basis, especially in an early stage. Hmm. That's another way of measuring founder quality is like, if you give someone a piece of tactical advice that you know works, how quickly do they take you up on it? Right. That's pretty good. Yeah. How quickly do they take that tactical feedback is really good. <laughs> Yeah. And what's great about your book, The Two Hour Cocktail Party, is you have so much oh tactical feedback, yes. right? And so yes. if someone's like, oh, I don't want to do the name takes, you're like, okay, well, they don't get it. You know? Yes. Oh my gosh. I wrote a whole chapter about why they don't yes. get it. I'm so proud of that. that <laughs> yeah. My book is very tactical. I'm not a good writer. I'm not a good, like, long form writer. I can't write a story to save my life compared to some other big writers, but I do know the tactics that yeah. work. Yes. And so the book is really meant to be more of a step-by-step how-to guide yes. than a like, oh, fun beach read or something yes, like that. Yes, yes. And I really appreciate when the book feels like it's talking to me. That's when you should demonstrate real expertise. It's like, I know you're thinking that here's the reasons you're not going to actually do this cocktail party. And here's yes. why each of those reasons is wrong. And I'm like, damn, those were three of my reasons. And yes. it's like, it, that's when you know someone really knows what they're talking about. It feels conversational because you're anticipating things that I'm actually thinking and rebutting them in real time, you know? Because that that's what you so lose. You, you lose that usually in a book because it's a one-way conversation. So it really requires a level of expertise to be able to deliver that. It's true. It's true. This has been a fantastic conversation. Thanks so much for joining us and talking about how you 
build a large network of acquaintances, the tactics of building an online fo- following. Wait, so yeah. tell us, where can people find you if they want more? Other than just hearing book. about you on My First Million podcasts and yes. other places. But where can people find you? The name of my book is called The Two Hour Cocktail Party. I've written some articles about how to host a networking event, how to plan a happy hour. I'll send those along for the show notes. I'm on social media at Nick Gray News. That's N-I-C-K-G-R-A-Y-N-E-W-S. And if you tweet at me on Twitter, I'm pretty likely to write back, sometimes very, very fast. So say hello. I'm always happy to meet a new friend. Nice. Thanks a lot, Nick. Thanks for having me.